Welcome to Mel and Sam's Author Success Stories podcast, where we celebrate and learn from the best in the writing business. For more interviews and writing advice, check out Author Success Stories magazine and our tips for writers series over at www.writerontheroad.com forward slash author success stories. And remember, in all your writing endeavours, it's the journey that matters. Today, I've got with me the beautiful Cassie Hamer. Hi, Cassie. Hi, Mel. I love your podcast. You have such great warmth and enthusiasm, and it, it really is lovely to be speaking with you. Thank you. I um, didn't know a whole lot about Cass before I started. Oh, this you and research. the rest of the world, Mel. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry, you're not alone. So, I'm really excited, everyone, to introduce a new writer, and the book is After the Party. Now, I had no idea what to expect for After the Party, but when I read it was 32 young children at a birthday party, I went, Oh my God, I'm in trouble. The poor main character, uh, Lisa, I think her name is, must have yeah. had a nervous breakdown. So, yeah. what, what even possessed you? To, to put a character in a room and then throw 32 kids at her. Oh, I know. What an idiot, right? Um, yeah, well, I have three young children myself and they're six, eight and ten and I have hosted quite a few parties here at my home on their behalf and I always find that kids' parties are constantly teetering on the edge of total disaster because you have so many children, they're so hyped up, there are games of competition, there's far too much sugar, and you're just kind of one errant piñata whack away from the whole thing just descending into total chaos. So I thought, what, what better scenario into which to put an inciting incident? So as you say, the, the party is a complete disaster. Lisa wakes up late, nothing's ready to go, she's about to have 32 children land on her doorstep, which they do, and the thing continues to be disastrous. And she makes it through, though. She struggles through until the end and reads a sigh of relief that they've all, the kids have been picked up and taken home. Well, all except one little girl who she discovers hiding in the dog kennel. And at first, Lisa thinks, well, the mum's just running late, no problem, let's just chill. Then she gets a note and the note is from little Ellie's mother and the note explains that, in fact, she's not coming back to pick up the child at all and that she's asking Lisa to take care of this child. And then Lisa's put into this massive conundrum, well, you know, what do I do? And the story takes off from there. Yeah, and it's really interesting, everyone, because when I set out to to research for this interview, Cassie, I wasn't quite sure where this novel was going to fit. And one of the reviews that I read is this reviewer thought it was going to be a romance and I thought, oh, we must have another chick lit um, book here. But it's not. It's, it's far, I think it's far deeper than that. It's got a lot of elements in it. We can all relate to it. We all cringe away from, from some of the things that happen in it. But basically, this book has a lot more depth and resonance uh, than, than just a quick story, doesn't it? Mm, I, think, I think it does. Well, thank you very much for saying that. But I love books that have light and shade. And I think... Women in particular, we are complex creatures. We um, are interested in a range of different things. One minute we can be talking about the Kardashians, the next minute we're talking about the state of the planet and politics. And we are not 
we cannot be pigeonholed. And my reading interests are pretty eclectic. I do like to read across a range of genres. But I have to say my absolute um, literary goddess is Leanne Moriarty. And reading her books was just a complete light bulb moment for me. And I don't claim in any way to have her ability because I just think she is quite remarkable. But I did draw from her books the concept that you can delve into quite serious subjects, but do it with a lightness of touch. And that's absolutely what I set out to do with After the Party. I had written two manuscripts previous, which were very serious and very sad. And I think that was a hangover from the fact that I had studied a master's in creative writing at university. And I think I was writing what I thought I should write, you know, and writing degrees at universities have a very literary bent. And that's really just not me. I'm just not that really super serious, substantial person. I like to laugh. I like to have fun. I also like to talk about politics and serious issues. And I think that's what I was trying to achieve with After the Party. Yeah, and it's really interesting. This book does have some big questions in it. Uh, who Who is in charge uh, of, of I guess, the upbringing of a child? Yeah. And when what's, do our, we... what's our collective responsibility to children, I guess? Yeah, and, like, as a teacher, we I come across this issue all the time, how far do we go and where are the boundaries? And you put that right up front and centre in your novel, didn't you, with um, Ellie and her sister... Oh, sorry, um, Cassie and her sister, Jamie. Yeah, yeah, with Lisa and her sister, Jamie. Yeah, I did. And uh, what inspired me to do that is that when I became a mum, it was probably a surprise to me as to how maternal I felt, not only to my own children, but to everyone else's children. Now, I'm not a particularly wonderful mother <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, just ask my three daughters, but I do have a great affinity for children and if I see a baby in a shopping centre, I'm that person who will run up and try to wangle my way into holding the baby within five seconds of meeting the mother. I do have a great um, sense that all children deserve love and deserve a safe environment but as we know, that is just not the reality. And I'm very interested in the foster care system and the out-of-home care system. I think there are many wonderful people in it, but I also think there are some children that fall through the cracks. And I just can't think of a worse thing to do to a child, to take them out of their own home in a vulnerable situation and then to put them in an even more vulnerable situation just seems unconscionable to me. And that's something I wanted to inject into the book. Yeah, and it's really interesting, everyone, because um, you touched, Cassie, on uh, you've done your Masters in Creative Writing and the idea that uh, literature has to be serious. Mm. Uh, and I wouldn't mind unpacking that a little bit because... Once you've done, uh, I guess, a higher studies um, course like that and once you've started to do your own writing and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the literary um, competitions and things that you've entered with your short stories, what does it take to, to find your own voice through all mm. of that? 
it takes a lot of writing, basically, and it takes um, a personal journey of arriving at the point where you actually don't care about what other people think of your reading choices or your writing choices. Nothing makes me more cross now than genre snobbery. And I see it everywhere. Uh, you look at the literary pages of our major newspapers, they're full of wonderful books. Of course they're wonderful books. But they're of a very particular genre. And it's usually literary fiction or it's crime fiction. Now, why is crime fiction, which is very commercially popular, considered more worthy of being in literary pages than women's commercial fiction, which you almost never see in these review pages? It makes me very cross, I have to say, and I think it's a throwback to um, patriarchy and sexism in that crime and literary novels have traditionally been mainly written by and for men. Um, but I think there's this huge appetite for women's stories uh, written by women and delving into domestic experiences. And I think when really well-written, domestic experience is a fascinating area to explore. Because as you said before, you talked about it being relatable. And I think we often read because we want to learn more about ourselves. And I think fiction does allow us a way to explore that and to develop our feelings of empathy, I suppose. Yeah. And I hear what you're saying because that a whole uh, literary versus popular fiction has been debated for a very long time. And I've just... Mm. Uh, yeah. Do, We're yeah. getting anywhere. <laughs> well, I think we are getting somewhere. Yeah. It, it does still frustrate me immensely, I must say. Yeah, and I've got Sam here. She's just um, she's going into second year uni, and she's just um, just arrived in our mailbox. If it would fit in our mailbox, is the Norton's anthology, anthology Norton's anthology of literary theory. Now, I studied that when I was at uni. It's this big, thick tomb of a thing, and you're going through theory has just exploded in the last, I guess, twenty years as we as we break off into all these different factions of literary theory and what makes a good story and what doesn't. And it's really interesting that the debate is still happening in our media um, because we've been very spoiled here at Writer on the Road. We have people like mm. Rachel Johns and Natasha Lester and all those guys, um, Belinda Alexander, they're all fighting very hard for everyone's right to write um, not only good stories but deep and meaningful stories as well. And I'm guessing that's where you're going to fit. Yeah, I think so. And and something you mentioned before was that before writing this book, I had done a lot of short story writing. And the short story scene in Australia has a very literary focus. There aren't many kind of commercial short stories competitions. So I think through that, I did try to hone my ability to write in that way. And that experience now informs um, the way in which I write the longer form fiction. But I must say that um, it's lovely to be free of kind of the shackles of literary fiction. And I think I've finally found my voice and my natural voice. And I know that because it's not such a struggle to sit down and write. 
writing in a literary literary style does not come that naturally to me, whereas writing a book like After the Party was just the total joy. It was so enjoyable to sit down at the computer every day and, and bash it out. And that was quite a different experience to the short stories which require so much... Um, plumbing of your emotional depths and stripping back and considering every word. And I do love a really well-written short story, but I also like the freedom of, of, that the longer form um, allows you as a writer. Yeah, and it's that whole thing of finding your voice, I think. And it's interesting because uh, what we used to joke about in literary fiction, and I'm pretty sure that the joke is still around, is that you write your story and then you go back and you stick in the metaphors and similes. <laughs> That's possibly true. I don't know. But, um, I mean, certainly with short stories, the brilliance comes out in the editing. There's no doubt. I mean, that's probably true of all fiction, I would have to say. I heard an interesting analogy the other day where a writer said that, that the story itself is perfect. So the story itself exists in your subconscious and it's already perfect. And your job as a writer is just to uncover it. And so your first draft is kind of your word vomit where you just get it all out there. But your second draft is chiseling away and actually sculpting, you know, and uncovering the beautiful piece of artwork that lies underneath. And I just really like that analogy, I guess. Yeah, and it's true, isn't it? it? It's finding the story. I hate editing everyone. I was, oh, that's why I love Dragon Dictation. I can just tell my stories and then move on to the next one. Not that I ever do anything with them. Uh, but talking about your journey. This yeah, is, I wouldn't this say is, editing is mine. No, I think I think we should all Sorry, get someone. Sorry, Mel, you go ahead. Yeah, I think we should all get someone else to, to edit our stories for oh. us. Oh, I agree. I, it, there's no doubt that this this book, After the Party, would not ever have seen the light of day unless I got the manuscript assessment done on it after I'd done the first draft. And if, if I could make any recommendation to an emerging writer, it would be to get someone who is not a friend or a family member to read your work. And you have to get totally unbiased and critical feedback and you really need to consider that feedback carefully. And, you know, whether you accept it or reject it is your decision in the end. You need to have valid reasons as to why you would accept the feedback of a qualified professional. Yeah, and manuscript assessment there, look, you do have to get a qualified professional to, to take that on board. And we're talking about structural edits right at the very beginning of that editing process because sometimes you're too close to your story and you don't see it. Now, you said you've written three novels. Um, did, you go, did you get the first two yeah. assessed as well? Yeah, I did. Um, one of the reasons was that I, at the time that I wrote them, I didn't particularly have many contacts in the writing world. And there really was no one who I could just ask to do it. Um, so I did my research and found some amazing professional editors who both of them, for books one and two, gave me a report, which was extremely useful, just detailing major issues with the book. 
Um, but with After the Party, I took it to an editor called Kim Swivel, and she came back to me not only with an overall report, but she'd actually annotated the entire manuscript, which if, you know, anyone who knows anything about editing will understand that that is a huge amount of work. And, and it was an unexpected gift, I suppose. But she was really direct as well, and she'd write things in the margin like, what is this story? Where is this story going? This doesn't belong in this story. So she was very clear about where the problems were. And after I gave myself a few minutes to just inhale and exhale and, you know, have a little mental breakdown, I thought she's absolutely spot on and I will be a fool if I don't follow her recommendations. Um, so, yeah, I'm so grateful to her for doing that. I just think uh, it was priceless, really. I know these assessments are expensive and it is a bit of an indulgence to be able to pay for one. Um, but if you can muster the funds to do it, give it to yourself as a birthday present or a Christmas present, it's absolutely worthwhile. Yeah, I know with uh, Miner's Wife that it was my PhD novel. Now, I'd read it to death. My supervisor had read it to death. We were over it. I put it out to... I, I indie published it, but I hired a professional um, group to do that, uh, Australian e-book publishers they were. And I think it cost us $5,000 or something to get the thing edited. And she came back with 400 mistakes. And we're going, how could that be? Oh, wow. That's extraordinary, isn't it? It's quite frightening how many pairs of eyes can look at a manuscript and you will still never all see the same things. And yes, it is pricey, but editing is one of those areas on which I, I just don't think you can skim. I think it's essential. I, I've not yet heard of a writer who can produce an immaculate first draft. I just don't think that person exists unless it's Tim Winton or someone like that. But I just think it's almost impossible to do, I would say. Yeah, and do we want to meet them anyway? Do we want to hear about those perfect people out there? I'm going to suggest not. Uh, so you've actually done it a little bit backwards. No, they're very annoying people. <laughs> yeah. Now, you've done it a little bit back to front. You've actually you've written your manuscript, you've got the assessment, then you started pitching it, is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So what happened was that I wrote the manuscript in 2016. I gave myself six months to do it um, because at the, at the time I was studying a teaching qualification and I had six months left on that degree, but I was only doing one subject. So I did have quite a bit of time on my hands. So I bashed out the first draft in six months, got Kim to give me the report, rewrote quite a substantial portion of it and then started to query agents, which was a completely soul-destroying eight months of my life, I would say. I sent it out to 24 agents and I was just looking at the numbers today. A third of them never responded. Um, two of them expressed some interest but ultimately didn't pick it up and the rest just said, no, no, basically no. Um, so that was a really difficult period. But, I mean, I guess by that point I'd actually been through a fair bit of rejection and it is part of the writing life um, and I think you probably get better at dealing with it the more it happens to you. 
And so after all the agents had passed on it, I wasn't particularly shocked or surprised by that, but I still really liked the manuscript. And when I reread it, I, I wouldn't completely cringe and want to run away and sob in the bathroom. So I thought, no, it's actually not that bad. I'm still going to persist with this thing. So I decided to um, leap on into the process of submitting to publishers and put it out there into the beautifully named slush piles of Australia. And it was getting towards the end of that process, again, which had been pretty much an abject failure, when I realised that um, Rachel Johns, whose books I love, and I'd read um, The Art of Keeping Secrets, which I would classify as a women's general fiction novel, and it was published by Harlequin. And I traditionally knew Harlequin as a romance imprint and had assumed that they wouldn't be interested in my book because it's not a romance book. There's, there is a love story, but it's very much a subplot. Um, but when I realised that Rachel was published by Harlequin, I thought, you know what, maybe, maybe they might be interested. So I sent it off with very low expectations and hopes. And then a few weeks later, I, I actually got an email from them and I just assumed it was going to be another rejection. So with a very heavy heart, I opened it and it said, oh, your manuscript has been put in the queue to be read by an editor. And I think my hopes went up from zero to one, perhaps. And then a few weeks on from that, um, I got another email asking me to come in for a meeting with the senior publisher and the publishing assistant. And at that point, I forwarded it to my husband and I said a few swear words and said, this might actually be a real thing. And uh, it all went from there. The meeting went really well. I was quite shocked by how much they seemed to like the manuscript to the point where I was thinking, are we actually talking about the same book? Because I just heard so many bad things about it that I really just couldn't believe that someone um, was finally going to champion it. But I think, as I say in the acknowledgements, finding a publisher is a lot like blind dating. You do have to kiss a lot of frogs before you find your prince, or in my case, my princesses. Um, but, you know, when you get rejected, it's not, all, it's not often because of the quality of the work, it's just because it's not what they're looking for at that moment, or they've already got too much of that same genre. And, and while it's very hard not to take it personally, um, rejection isn't always a reflection of the manuscript that you've submitted. And yeah, and it's interesting, isn't it? Because at any step, uh, any time along that um, compendium, you could have given up. Oh, easily. But the only person who would have lost out would be myself. I mean, the rest of the world doesn't care about my writing and my manuscript. And and I think um, the thing that kept me going was the thought of being a really old woman um, and thinking to myself, why didn't I just keep trying? Why didn't I just have another go? And I just didn't want to regret not having given it everything. And the other thing is that I just really like writing. And I think even if after the party hadn't been published, I still would have been writing anyway, just because it is something that gives me great pleasure and satisfaction. And I think 
you you have to start doing it for that reason because there's not a lot of money in it. Um, so you do have to genuinely love it because it takes up a lot of time, that's for sure. Yeah, and it takes up a lot of your your mental space as well as you as you worry this thing through. I'm going to ask everyone because I'm a complete sticky beak. Talk us through the meeting with the publisher. I don't think I've ever asked anyone that question before. What's it like walking into a meeting? I know I know you're in Sydney, shaking your boots, getting off the bus at George Street and walking mm. to the publisher. Um, I know Harlequin are really champion Australian authors. I have a lot of um, Harlequin authors um, on the podcast. When you walk in and you meet someone, you imagine this senior publishing editor as being someone really, really 20 foot tall. What was it like? <laughs> That's exactly what I thought it was going to be like. I thought it was going to be some really imposing, scary person who'd be really critical and say, look, it's, it's not bad, but here's X, Y, Z where you need to improve it. I was really nervous. Um, I wore an outfit that made me feel good about myself because I thought I'll just, I just need every ounce of confidence that I can muster. But I think I also went in with an attitude that I had nothing to lose um, and everything to gain. And this was my shot. This was my toe in the door and I was not going to die wondering. I was just going to give it everything I had. But I actually probably didn't need to sell myself to them in in a way it was almost the reverse it was them trying to tell me how much they loved it and I think that was more shocking than anything really was their enthusiasm and Joe Mackay my publisher is just the most gorgeous positive soft lovely woman that you could imagine because I think when you're querying you imagine publishers as these very severe gatekeeper types who you know were just just too busy for the likes of uh, emerging writers but I don't think it's like that at all they want to publish books they love books they're reading lovers just like us writers are it's just that they are constrained by how much can be published so no it was the most wonderful experience it was really the first time in my life that someone had told me to my face they actually liked my writing and I walked out of there feeling uh, 10 foot tall and I knew it wasn't across the line. They, Joe had explained that they still needed to take the manuscript to an acquisitions meeting. So basically the publisher still has to go and convince everyone else in the company that the book is worth uh, printing. And so she asked me for a bit more information and I supplied some um, synopses for further books that I might write, which I actually hadn't really thought about at all, and gave her some potential marketing ideas where I thought I could contribute to publicising the book. And Joe took all of that information to the acquisitions meeting, which happened a couple of weeks later. And then on the day of that meeting, I was in bowels of central station and my phone rang and the train is approaching and so there's whooshing of wind and it's noise and I knew what the phone call was and I was just quaking with nerves and anyway it was Jo and she said we're going to publish and um, 
I was so surprised and unsure that I had to email her later on just to double check that I'd actually heard the right thing because I was thinking, did she say yes? I'm not quite sure. I couldn't really hear everything. But, um, yeah, it's so nice reliving those memories because a lot has happened since then and, and you very quickly forget that amazing feeling. But um, And that's another thing I would recommend to all writers is to celebrate the wins along the way, even those really small ones, getting shortlisted, getting a highly commended celebrate it and hold on to it because that is what keeps you going in the tough times, I think. You would experience that, Mel, right? I think it's exciting. I'm experiencing it again now as I listen to you. Mm. Um, This is something that we don't uh, often get to hear, everyone. Uh, There's lots of ways this podcast could have gone today. We could talk about short stories. We could talk about pitching. We could talk about all those things. Very rarely do we get to celebrate the good times with our authors. And this is a really exciting time. The book has only just gone out. Uh, I think it went out on the 18th of February. So. Tell us about the reviews because I'm sure there have been reviews coming in already. Yeah, there have. Um, Mostly they've been really kind and supportive and I always read them with trepidation because I know that reading is a subjective experience and I don't expect that everyone is going to love this book but I really hope that a lot of readers will take it into their heart. But the response so far has been really positive. I do, you know, everyone says don't read Goodreads, but of course we all do. And there has been a two-star review and I read it and I didn't feel as terrible as what I thought I might feel. I just sort of thought, yeah, well, that's that's a point of view. That's a valid point of view. Um, Reader just didn't quite engage with the material that's fine. It doesn't make me a worse person. It doesn't devalue the book. It just is what it is. Reading is about, often a lot about pace. A place like Goodreads is a place where readers express their points of view and their tastes. Um, But yeah, it's actually been really good. Over the years, I've developed some contacts with other book bloggers because that's something I did for a while and they've read it and um, they've been really wonderful about it and, and they just engage with the material. That's all you can ask of a reviewer is that they come to it with an open mind and an open heart and they try to understand what you as the author was trying to achieve. That is all I ask. If you don't like it, fine. But if you've tried to um, figure out what the intention was, that's all I ask. Yeah, I think someone likened it, or likened your novel to Bridget Jones's diary. Yeah, I saw that and I thought... That's probably not far off because Lisa, the main character, she's a little bit of a ditz as well. Like she, she's gorgeous and I love her. But there are definitely moments where um, a couple of editors along the way have suggested that she was a little too daffy. And I think that, that actually that description is what comes to mind when I think of Bridget Jones. Like that just side, slightly fumbling but always trying and really, really lovely person but just sometimes falling short of the mark. So I, I thought that was not a comparison I'd thought of before but I think it's probably pretty spot on actually. Yeah, and there's not too many people who don't like Bridget Jones's diary that I've come across in my life, um, and especially with Colin Firth, I think he's pretty cute as well. Oh, uh, but I don't think you can trust a person who doesn't like Bridget Jones, really, can you? <laughs> and 
And it brings us right back around to that um, literary versus um, commercial yeah. fiction, you know. Yeah. A good story is a good story regardless of how you categorise it. Uh, now, I'm not going to start you off again on that one because I know, it, I know it'll get you all excited. Don't get me started, Mel. <laughs> oh, that's part of the fun. That's what we do here best. Tell me about your uh, residency at, um, is it, I don't know how to pronounce it, down at... Um, Bundanon. Yeah, Bundanon. Yeah, Bundanon. I had um, Karen Dickers on the podcast, everyone, and she did a residency down there as well. So what is it that all our authors uh, in New South Wales are heading down to Bundanon to this beautiful, beautiful place on the river uh, to write? It's, a, it's an extraordinary place. It's a really remote property um, about oh, probably 30 kilometres from the nearest township and you drive on a dirt track to get there and you're going through kind of the, a mountain ridge and then at the last minute you descend into this valley and it just opens up into this beautiful green grassland with cows and kangaroos and wombats and you think, oh, what is this paradise that I've arrived in? And there's this gorgeous Shoalhaven River which is wide and expansive. It's just a really picturesque place so it's where the renowned Australian artist Arthur Boyd did a lot of his work and was the inspiration behind a lot of his artwork and he had a homestead there and he gifted that property to the New South Wales government to be used as an artist in residence um, place and they've since built a few cottages on the property and one of them is a writer's cottage and it's a very cosy um, quaint little wooden weatherboard cottage. You sit at your writing desk and you look out to kangaroos and Charlotte Wood, the renowned Australian female writer, has had a residency there and she describes the kangaroo ballet. And that's what it's like because you see these kangaroos having little fisticuffs and fights and interactions throughout the day. And just to think of the amazing writers who've sat there before you inspires you to do so much work. And my output when I was in Bundanon was more than double what I could achieve um, at home. I think in one of the weeks I wrote about 20,000 words, which is a, a big feat for me. But it's just having the time and the seclusion. There's Wi-Fi, but you can't use your mobile phone. Uh, and there's some other people around, but it's very much just you and the computer and the solitude and the beauty. And it's just a gorgeous place. Yeah, I'd love it. You have to go, Mel. Go and visit. I, oh, you lost me at kangaroos. See, I grew up in the country and, you know, kangaroos and cow paddocks and cow poo and all that. I'm going, how <laughs> City people can call this romantic, but I wasn't going to bring that up. I wasn't going to say anything. Uh, now, oh, you must think we're idiots. But for, me, it's a, for me, a city slicker, it's, uh, I'm a little bit scared of the kangaroos, I'll admit. They really fit to with their days. And I did have a resident wombat under the cottage, which every night would manage to whack into one of the joists and make the whole thing shudder. And I thought at one point a wombat was going to end up in the bed with me, which did freak me out a little bit. But no, it's great. It's just about a change of scenery, I think. I think Cassie's the type of person, everyone, who thinks possums are cute. Oh, no, I hate possums. We have possums here at my house. I hate them. Vermin. Sorry. I know people love possums. Now I'm going to get possum fan hate mail or get trolled by possum lovers. 
I've never heard of possum in my life. Let me just yeah, you've just had a taste of Australian bush life, everybody. Uh, yeah, the kangaroos do not hop down the main street of Sydney, but they are certainly out there in the bush. Yeah. Now, were you working on your next project? Yeah, I've actually submitted a second book to my publisher and she's going to be reading that soon. It's um, similar in that I think it has um, light and shade. The setting's a bit different. I would describe it as... Desperate Housewives meets The Golden Child by Wendy James, which was a wonderful book written a couple of years ago um, about a very creepy, I shouldn't say it because it'll give it away. Read the book. Um, yeah, anyway, that's a little taste of what may come. I don't know. The publisher hasn't even read it yet, so who knows? She might hate it and I might yeah. have to rewrite and write something new. I don't know. Yeah, and that's really interesting, that that delay. As you said, your first book's just come out, your second mm. book's at the publisher, you've been working really, really hard. Is that going to be the story from now on? Is that um, writing a book and getting it out there, doing the marketing for one book and working on the next book? Yeah, that's the plan. I heard a writer once say that the best way to market your book is to write a new one. And I think that's true. I think building a backlist is a really helpful way to sell new books and the old books and also you just don't want to sit around waiting like I would I would be doing my head in at the moment if I was just sitting around and worrying about if people are buying or reading the book and just constantly checking social media that's just not good for my mental state so for me I've moved on now to the third book which doesn't have a contract I don't know if it'll ever be published but it's certainly giving me pleasure to write and it's giving me a focus outside of myself which is the whole reason I got into writing I started writing creatively after my second child I was at home with two very young children and it was just doing my head in I think to be so focused on the children and writing in a way, it just allows me to get outside of my own head and have a distraction which is fun and enjoyable and means I don't obsess about myself and the kids and the family. Yeah, your kids are at school now, I'm taking it. Yes, which opens up a whole new world of possibilities because I have that set period between nine and two-ish where I know that I can write and it's probably about the perfect amount of time. I don't think I could write for more than four or five hours per day because I do find it quite mentally exhausting. Um, so the school day is actually really conducive to writing. Well, it is for me. And then when the kids get home, I have to extract myself out of the imaginary world because they want a mother who's fully present and engaged. And that can be quite difficult. I don't know if you've ever found this, Mel, that you have to, it can be hard to leave that fictional world behind, but children just demand that you are there. So I just don't have a choice. So it's, it's kind of a good balance, I guess, in a way. Yeah, and it is a balance now, everyone. Um, if we think about the Virginia Woolf, you know, a room of her own, they don't exist for the majority of us. You've got to balance everything. I know, and I don't know whether it was Rachel Johns, they write for 10 minutes as they're queuing up at the soccer fields and, and you'd snatch your writing where you can, which would drive me insane. But being able to have your room, have your gear set up, 
and not have to pack it away. Just that, that whole fact of not doing it on the kitchen table is a treat in itself, isn't it? Well, funnily enough, here I am on my kitchen table. I know no one out there can see me, but um, sadly in this house, I don't have my own office. Uh, I could write in the garage, but it's a bit smelly and pokey and I like to be in a, who was the writer that said you need a well-lit, clean room? Oh, I don't know, I can't remember now, but anyway, my kitchen is a lovely bright space. I can look out the windows, the dog sleeps at my feet. I do have to pack away things at the end of the day, but I actually find that is another, it's almost a physical way for me to separate from the fictional world and get back into the real world and, and re-engage with everything else that's going around, or a lot, you know, happening around me. Yeah, and I've got, to, I've got to say thank you for that. I think for that slice of the writing life that we don't actually get to engage with as much as we, we wish we could because the story that you're telling all of us is, could be describing the story of any, anyone listening to this podcast. What's your, what's your one piece of advice? And I know you've given us lots all the way through and I think it's don't give up would be, would be my message. What's yeah. that one piece of advice that you would give to others that kept you going? Hmm, that is a good question. I think, and I think I said this earlier, if you're going to give up, who's the one that suffers? It's just you, you know? So keep going for yourself. If you're not enjoying it, don't do it, is my advice. You've got to do it because you love it and you enjoy it. If you want to take a break, take a break. Um, but keep going. I think... Other people's validation of your work hopefully is not the reason that you're doing it. Um, do it for the pleasure. I think at the end of the day, um, my first love was reading. It will always be reading. I'm probably a reader first and a writer second in some ways. I think books will always play a part in my life and writing is just a lovely adjunct to that. So I guess... My advice is um, figure out why you're doing it and cling to that and imagine yourself as that 85-year-old woman or man uh, and you don't want to have the regret of not having tried. And I know that some people struggle with putting themselves out there and putting their work out there. You don't have to. You can just write purely for your own pleasure. That's a very valid reason um, to do it. I know it can be difficult for other people to take it seriously when you're not a published writer, but if you take it seriously and you let people in, it's incredible how supportive they are. They won't think you're an idiot. Most people that I have told that I write are just really interested and they don't judge it. They just accept it and they ask questions. Yeah, and, that, and that's one of the beauties of having all our beautiful writers around us is that asking of questions uh, yes. so that we all know that we're not alone. Um, remember, everybody, it's not as scary behind the publisher's door as we all think it is. It's not that daunting. Uh, you are living, breathing proof that tenacity pays off. Uh, and we wish you all the best with After the Party and may all those kids... Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah, what can I, I say I, about all those kids? I nearly, um, I nearly had one such disastrous party when my eldest child was seven that I almost swore off parties for the rest of my life. But then coming closer to the book launch, I kind of thought, mm, I probably better reacquaint myself with the actual process of um, what it feels like to host a party at home. So I'm straight back into the party organising, had three in a row at the end of last year and, um, yeah, it's alternate. I have a love-hate relationship, I would say, with the kids' parties and um, I think that very much translates into the book. Yeah. All right, I'm going to let you go now, Cassie, because I've had you for nearly an hour and I really, really appreciate your generosity. But I, I've got to ask this question. I know I had a last one, everyone, but I've got to slip this one in. Do you recommend that if you're that way inclined, that that master's degree has helped you become a better writer? Oh, for sure. Without doubt. I think any study of the craft is going to help you as a writer. Perhaps I don't write in that particular genre of literary fiction anymore, but I still do write the occasional short story. Um, but it just gave me a taste of the writing world and it was the way in which I made my first contacts and really kind of opened my eyes and actually that would be my other piece of advice is get out from behind the computer and actually meet people and immerse yourself in the writing world because writing is like any other businesses publishers like to work with people that they know and people that they know are easy to work with so Chase those pitching opportunities, get to conferences, get to festivals, get to know other writers because um, at the end of the day, it can be quite solitary, but writers are really lovely people in the main. And that has been one of the nicest things of this whole experience, I think, is getting involved in that community. It's, it's only been a positive in my life. Yeah, and, and I think I can, I can thoroughly back that up. And everyone, no matter where you are on the publishing journey, has something to offer. Oh, completely. I mean, as I've, I think I mentioned to you before, I listen to so many different writing podcasts because, uh, as you say, every writer has something to teach you. And writing is one of those things for me which I will never feel that I have completely mastered. And I will always be trying to improve. And you can do that one of two ways, I guess. One is by reading, another is by studying, but another is just by listening to other writers. It's such a, it's such a blessing when writers share their stories. And that's why I really do love podcasts like yours, Mel. So thank you very much for the opportunity that you give us all. Oh, I do it for myself because I like listening to you. <laughs> All right. Uh, we can find uh, After the Party at Cassie's website and it's CassieHammer.com. That's it, CassieHammer.com. And the book's every, pretty much everywhere. You know, you came up with big W, Dimix, blah, next, blah. So next, right next to Fiona Lowe's. Oh, she's so fabulous. She has given me so much advice and tips. I really love that woman, honestly. I just don't see her enough. Yeah, and Fiona, if you're out there, it's time you came on the podcast. <laughs>